Welcome to Gondrepreneur, helping Gondrepreneurs grow and succeed in every sector of the cannabis industry. Gondrepreneur will introduce you to the cannabis pioneers who are paving the way for future generations. Learn about the shifting landscape of the market directly from the experts and get to know some of the leading minds in the industry as they tell their story of struggles and success. Now, CannabisRadio.com presents Gondrepreneur. Hi there, and welcome to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose. The Gondrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Jeremy Moberg of Canisole Farms, a sun-grown cannabis producer in Washington State. Jeremy is also an outspoken proponent of sun-grown cannabis and is president of the Washington Sun Growers Industry Association and the Okanagan Cannabis Association. Hey, welcome, Jeremy. Glad you could be on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Jeremy, let's start first and foremost about the flowers that you grow, because that's what people are probably mostly interested in. What are the unique benefits of sun-grown cannabis in flower and potency and terpene profile versus indoor? Uh, well, I think it comes from a long evolution of the plant growing. <laughs> you know, it may sound ridiculous to say, but under the sun, of course, that's how it evolved, and it's not fully realized its potential until it has been grown under the full spectrum of the sun. And I think that that's just it. It's the full spectrum. I mean, we see indoor growers, you know, marketing and advertising lighting to be more full spectrum, and you can't get any more full spectrum than the actual sun. So, what does that relate? or end up in as far as quality in the flower. <clears throat> I think that it has a greater terpene profile. Terpenes and cannabinoids are basically the response to the intensity of the sun. And it's not all just the uh, UV, the wavelengths that photosynthesis happens under. The other parts of the spectrum play a role as well. And I believe that the uh, terpene profiles that come out of sun-grown are uh, generally better than what comes out of kind of one-dimensional, very specific light waves under lights. So I'm already a big fan of sun-grown, but to play the devil's advocate, I can imagine somebody saying, well, in my indoor garden, I'm able to treat my ladies like Olympic athletes. I give them only the things that they need. I give them premium light that's really close, and, and I baby them versus what you're doing where they're, they're outdoors and they've, they've got the elements and they have to deal with you know, outdoor pests. What would, what's your response to that when people say to you, well, you know, I like to baby my plants better than you do with your outdoor crop? <laughs> um, well, I think, I think that the environment that you're growing in is critical, whether it's indoor or outdoor. So obviously not all outdoor locations are created equally. You know, you, I could not have my farm on the west side of the state and produce the quality that I produce. So in that sense, I think that there are different environments that are either better or worse for growing marijuana. Um, <clears throat> now, as far as, as babying the, the plants, I think that you know, I have 30 people on staff all summer, so we, we give a lot of care and attention to all of our plants. Yeah, we, we may have a little bit more at a single time, but in fact, they require a lot of attention. In fact, 
you know, we're not just planting seeds and letting them grow and hanging out all summer and waiting for, <laughs> to reap the rewards of harvest. In fact, it's much different than that, the way that we grow, the different strains we grow, how we grow them. Um, and so, you know, as far as <laughs> who's spending more time, I think my labor costs are, are actually higher than indoor operations because they are so demanding and because I grow so many different kinds of pot that have different requirements. So there on the east side of Washington, where there's more sun than on the west side, um, you know, obviously you have got some risks, just like any outdoor agricultural product is going to have. And your risks are going to be different than that of an indoor grower. So, so why don't you take off some of the, some of the risks that you either have experienced or, or have to prevent um, growing outdoor versus indoor? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it would be really interesting to try to get an insurance adjuster to tackle this question. <laughs> you know? Like who, you know, if you were going to put some a, a premium or on a insurance policy, what would it be? You know, and what would the risk factors between indoor and outdoor be? And I don't think that, that the risk is all in the outdoor. I mean, there's so much risk associated with indoor uh, potentially as well. But the big risks that I think the biggest risks that we face are probably high winds. Um, and because they come fast and they, they can come hard. So we've been through some wind events, you know, up to 40, 50 mile an hour winds. And the plants have been extremely resilient to that. As long as they're not rigidly contained, you know, sometimes you see like the California methods of growing where you've got cage over cage over cage, you know, and, and if a 50 mile an hour wind came, well, then that plant is just beating itself against that cage and it's causing injuries, it's causing potential introductions of, of a virus or disease. And so as long as the plants are free to move like a tree in the forest, you know, sway back and forth, they generally, um, uh, tolerate the wind just fine. Obviously, the other risks of outdoor growing are pests. Um, but, you know, I, I've always said that you might have a pest, but our environment changes so much, even throughout the day, throughout the season, from early season, mid-season, late season, from morning to afternoon to evening, that there's so much change in the environment that it's not always an ideal um, environment for pests. Whereas if you compare that to an indoor environment, which is really homogenous, that is ideal conditions for a pest that matches that environment. And there's really no stopping it. Um, once that pest gets a hold of in that you know, 24 hour, the same conditions, um, it's, it's probably going to lead to extreme amount of problems. You know, some outdoor growers say that one of the reasons they like to be outdoors is because the, the pests, when they're outdoors, they themselves have got predators that eat them if they invade your crop. Whereas in indoors, because it's such a controlled environment, if you get a spider mite, there's not actually a predator for the spider mite there unless you introduce it. Is that what you experience as well as just nature takes care of itself, bringing itself back into balance? Yeah, you know, I think the predators do play a role. I don't think it's as big of a role as people think. I actually think the fluctuations in temperature and humidity between night and day and season and just weather events, you know, you get five days of uh, maybe moisture and then you get, you know, uh, 50 days of over 100 degrees like we had this this year, you know, and so those differences in temperature and whatnot will control the pest. And these pests also go through cyclical um, uh, growth patterns throughout the season, you know, where they can, you know, it's like aphids are early season, mites late mid season, and, uh, you know, caterpillars are our final season. 
You know, so you can almost expect to see what sort of pests are going to be uh, next. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm only two years in, I have two years uh, under my belt now of large scale production. And, you know, and I started to see some of the same patterns I saw last year. And we also see um, pests focus on certain plants, whether they're sick plants or whether it's just a certain something about that plant. You know, it's like uh, spider mites, they're in the world. You know, you're going to have them. If you're outdoors and there's farming going around, you're probably going to have spider mites. Hopefully they're not broad mites from California, but hopefully they're just traditional spider mites. And I've seen them just attack like weak plants and not attack the healthy plants. And so I'll kind of grow a plant for the spider mites. Oh, I was about to ask you if you culled those weak plants just to not attract them, but it sounds like just the opposite. You're like, hey, man, you guys can all mac on this one and stay away from the healthy plants. Yeah, that's what I do. I, I think if I were to pull that plant that they would go to the next weakest plant. Mm-hmm. So is, is part of growing outdoors uh, planting right into the ground or are you still in containers of some sort? Uh, I prefer planting into the ground. Now, that does not mean that I'm growing in the native soil. You know, I don't think growing in the native soil is a good option at all. You know, I, I think you should be amending your soil and you should probably be uh, sourcing your soil. So we, what we do is we source our soil sustainably. I don't buy any um, Canadian peat moss, sphagnum moss. That's an unsustainable crop. But we do have a peat bog here um, not far from the farm um, that is not sphagnum. It's a uh, different species of moss. And it's like four and a half million cubic feet of this. So we're able to harvest that from there locally, send it to a, a soil mixer, and then we ship all of our amendments to there. And uh, he delivers those in 65-yard truckloads. And from there, the soil, we, we drill uh, holes into the uh, ground using a large auger, and we fill those up. So essentially, we have pots in the ground. <laughs> right on, in-ground pots. I follow that. Well, hey, we need to take a short break. Uh, we will be right back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. After a short message from the sponsors who made this show possible, Gondrepreneur will return. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. 
Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. Right? <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the king, right? You just have, you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to help gondrepreneurs grow. You're listening to Gondrepreneur only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Jeremy Moberg of Canisol. Before the break, we were talking about the benefits of sun-grown cannabis and how to go about producing the best sun-grown cannabis that's possible. And we were talking a little bit about all of the windstorms that you uh, occasionally get out there in eastern Washington where you want to be because of all the sunshine. And it occurred to me that, you know, with all of that uh, wind going around, you might actually have dusty plants. Do you have that experience of, of having just natural dust settling on the plants? And, and what do you do to get rid of that? Do you have to wash them before market? That's a very good question. Um, absolutely. Yes. Dust, dust is part of the environment here in the Okanagan. Almost anywhere where you have the sun intensity that you need, you're going to get the dust along with it. And of course, and it does collect on marijuana. So yes, we do wash our, our plants and I think it'll quickly become the ind- industry standard. I think if you're not washing your plants, you're essentially selling dusty weed. And uh, I don't think that's what consumers want. I mean, I've, I've seen it, you know, it's like you can wash plants and you can see the dust come off of the plant. And you know, this summer we had fires in our area. So we had, you know, the little tiny little ash particles on the plant. Um, so that, and you can get little flies on the plant. I mean, this is an agricultural crop. So just like you would not sell an apple without washing it, you shouldn't be selling your weed without washing it as well. Mm, that's a good example. Let's let's drill down on that really specific for folks. So, you know, I've seen people on YouTube uh, wash their plants with a water and hydrogen peroxide mixture. And, you know, they're just doing it branch by branch, but you're doing it at a commercial level. Um, can you get real specific how you wash your plants? Are you washing the entirety of the plant or are you breaking it down partially first? How do you do that? Well, first off, we don't add anything to it. It is a pure water wash from well water. Mm. I think any sort of adulteration like a hydrogen peroxide or really anything in that mix would not, um, would not be a good thing. I mean, particularly, particularly hydrogen peroxide, it's known to degrade THC. Um, and so I think if, you know, maybe what you've seen is people trying to control powdery mildew or some other aspect of it afterwards. And that's not what this is meant for. This is meant to just uh, clean the plant and we do it on the plant. Um, so, you know, I prefer to have like natural washes and, you know, rain can take care of a lot of it, but of course we don't get a lot of that. Um, so as the, right before the plant, we've just got spray nozzles on hoses with clean well water and uh, we'll just hold the plant and, and just wash it straight down. I mean, it does take time. It definitely creates a bottleneck in the process and it, and it creates a, uh, a lot of work that has to be done because then you've got to actually dry the plant before you can t- uh, move it into, into a dry room or cure room. You know, you just doused it with a lot of water and cleaned it and got it clean. Um, so we usually, we'll use blow dryers potentially or we'll just hang dry for an hour or so and then uh, move into the cure room. 
it's so convenient that trichomes are hydrophobic so we can get away with this, right? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say to the, uh, the nature of the polar molecule is that water does not react with it, you know, so it's kind of the best thing you can use um, to do it. Um, so you're not degrading the uh, THC or any aspect of the plant by washing it. So your branding and packaging is just fantastic. It's elegant. It's beautiful. It's attractive to people of all ages. You're under glass. It's a, you know, you're definitely producing a premium product. Alas, you know, historically, a lot of people have talked trash about outdoor because, you know, indoor, you know, was hidden and people could give it all the love it needed. But outdoor, people are constantly, you know, hiding the plants or having, thinking that they might have to cut and run the plants because, you know, we've lived under prohibition for so long. Have you experienced any pushback from cannabis retailers that they didn't necessarily want outdoor where you had to add a lot more of education to your sales cycle or, or have retailers been really open to it from the get-go? Well, I, it, it, the response has varied. You know, surprisingly enough, Eastern Washington seems less apt to have that stereotype about outdoor. I think most, you know, people that are coming to the market in Eastern Washington, they go to the store and, you know, they live in an agricultural zone. So for them, you know, their first thought is that it's all outdoor. It's a little bit surprising even for some consumers in eastern Washington to be told that there's an indoor option. I mean, you can't buy any other crop indoors. You've never gotten that option on any other crop. So they get, they, you know, over in eastern Washington, it's a little bit different. As far as the stereotypes coming from uh, prohibition, they're largely right. You know, the outdoor crops were not what we're growing today. And it's gotten much better over time because now we're able to really care for the plant, you know, and we're not growing like we used to out in the hills waiting for a snowstorm to come and harvesting it all right before the snow hits. And so educating the consumer and the retailer on this has been a challenge, but I think the packaging helps. It says that this is a premium product. Also the fact that we grow predominantly sativa strains, um, it kind of distinguishes us from outdoor. Of course, you could never grow a sativa strain outdoor, and now you can because you can control and manipulate the cycle. So, and that's something that indoor growers can't do or have a hard time doing because the cost of growing sativas is so high due to the long flowering time. So, so that's where I was going next was the strains. So, so in experimenting with the strains, you know, you can't just take any old indoor strain and, and grow it outdoors. Tell us a little bit about the experience that you went through in choosing your outdoor strains for commercial growing. Well, I would argue that point. I think you can take any, any indoor strain and grow it outdoors. I really do not divide genetics between indoor and outdoor. I mean, I do divide them that there's some that can only be uh, indoor, but all of them can be grown outdoor. I would say that, of course, you know, the long flowering sativas, I mean, like ridiculous ones like Dr. Grinspoon, which is just a ridiculous plant. You know, it would, it would, I don't think it would ever mature. You know, you could flower <laughs> it for 20 weeks and it would still just be throwing all of these pastilles off. And it's a it's a, and it's a terrible yielder. So my when I started growing out under the sun, not outdoors like we used to do under the gorilla growing, you know that's what outdoor was. This is sun growing, uh, where we have full control and full manipulation of the cycle. And so now the challenge is to grow anything. And um, so hence I've got like 120 strains right now, I believe. Wow. And I believe that they can all be grown. You know, you've just got to be able to figure out how to manipulate the plant. 
So with that many strains, I mean, I, you really caught me off guard with that. Do you have that many strains in production or that you have that many strains that are sitting in your genetics library and maybe you're running, you know, nine major strains? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit like that. I would say there's about 10 major strains and about 40 that are 40 additional strains that you could say are in production. In other words, we produce more than a pound or so. And then the other 80 or 50 to 80 that we have are uh, definitely R&D and uh, looking at different phenotypes of different genetics. Like just this year, I, you know, I grew the sage, which I've always wanted, wanted to grow. And uh, I had 10 females from it and they were all, they were all pretty different, you know. So now I got to rate them, mother them, uh, test them. Uh, get their terpene profiles, get their cannabinoidal profiles, and then make a decision about which one I want to grow. That's a lengthy process to kind of come up with strains that you want to put to market. So have you found that, that either yourself or your sales team have needed to educate the retailers on how to explain the benefits of outdoor versus indoor to the end customer? Because, you know, a lot of folks, especially people who are just now coming into cannabis since it's legal, they don't really understand how sunshine, you know, greatly widens the terpene profile so it tastes better and it's more effective medicine and how the potency can be as strong, if not stronger, you know, to get that information down the line from from you to your salespeople to the to the you know bud tender to the consumer that's a long way to go do you have any support for the for the bud tenders and retailers on that yes it's an, it's a it's a huge point you know we have to spend a lot of time doing this and really the whole industry all the sun growers need to be be doing this i think canisole has definitely led the move towards explaining what sun growing is to to consumers and i think getting in front of the bud tenders is exactly where it's done i mean this it doesn't take very long when you have a consumer in front of you to explain to them the differences and generally they're like it this is a no brainer of course they're going to go with the sun grown you know, and many of them are like, well, why are we growing this indoor anyways? You know, I would assume that it's a crop and that it would be grown under the sun. So it's a really kind of an odd place where we're at that we've gotten through to through prohibition. You know, the indoor growing was purely a product of prohibition. It would have never existed had prohibition not moved it inside. So, but now we have, but now we, so we've got this kind of inertia behind this concept because remember indoor growing, I mean, it's a good thing too. I, I've done plenty of it myself. Itself because we, we grew quality marijuana for the first time indoors, you know, and because we couldn't, we couldn't have that control and that manipulation outdoors, uh, but now we can. And so, and now overcoming that stereotype definitely is a challenge. Um, but when you just start talking about the details of it is, is the environmental impact is huge, you know. No, no, Jeremy, so hold, hold on. Before you go into the environmental impact, because I know this is one of your favorite topics to talk about, we need to take a quick short break. And when we come back, we will talk about the environment and the electricity uses of indoor. You're listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. We will be right back. After a short message from the sponsors who made this show possible, Gontrepreneur will return. It's temperature is shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's order. Less heat. <laughs> More flavor. 
InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Penguin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to help Gondrepreneurs grow. You're listening to Gondrepreneur, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is Jeremy Moberg of Canisol. Now, Jeremy, I know that one of the biggest reasons that you choose to grow outdoor outside of the potency and awesome terpene profiles of outdoor cannabis is that you are uh, a very dedicated environmentalist, and you have spoken to the uh, Washington Liquor Control Board about the harms of the electricity usage uh, for indoor grows, and actually honestly, you're probably the most educated person on uh, cannabis electricity consumption that I know of. So why don't you talk about a little bit? I want to I give you a platform to talk about why you think that electricity-grown cannabis is inappropriate and should be phased out. Yeah, well, I think some credit goes out to Dr. Evan Mills. He is a uh, research scientist out of the National Labs um, out of San Francisco. And he took this project on upon his own time. And so he had heard about it, and so he decided to look into it. And he got the numbers together and crunched them and came out with a pretty amazing peer-reviewed research that concluded that 1% of the nation's power is being used to grow marijuana currently. That's equal to 2 to 3 million homes electric consumption. And, you know, there's a couple of different ways to produce power. You can produce it with coal or, or carbon-based uh, power. You can produce it, you know, cleaner with wind or, or hydropower. Of course, we're, we're in a hydropower state and that's a real benefit to our area. It doesn't, doesn't mean that we should waste it though. So in terms of carbon, if that were carbon produced, that's two to three million cars on the road. So the statistics are amazing. And then when you start to dial it into what it is, what, what does it mean for Washington? You know, I did a lot of analysis of what I thought uh, Washington was producing. And I came up with about 4% of, of the state's power was being used to cultivate if all of the indoor, uh, legal indoor grows were all indoor or the legal grows were all indoor. And that is more than all the solar power that we produce in the state currently. And then at the same time, we're like, we're advocating for 
more solar. It's like, well, put the brakes on that. Don't worry about putting more solar operations up as long as we have warehouses growing marijuana where there is a viable alternative, which is to grow under the sun. And we saw this in the Seattle City Council. You know, the Seattle City Council a year and a half ago or maybe two years ago now when this issue was in front of the Liquor Control Board, they were about ready to zone 80,000 square foot indoor grows for the Soto District. And on the very same day, adopt the most aggressive climate agenda of any city in the United States. Well, I got on the phone and called every single council member that I could and talked to most of their aides. And they just, they couldn't, they didn't have an answer. They couldn't say, oh, well, one of them was like, well, we're for the patients, you know, just kind of punted. But they definitely reacted to it. And I got, I got that bill stopped. They were going to fast track it. And we brought this to their attention and they were like, whoa, okay, maybe we can't do this. And so what they ended up doing was a 10,000 square foot grow. Somehow though, in the Soto district today, we've got 30,000 square foot grows. I'm not totally sure how that happened <laughs> since we already had the Seattle City Council say no to that and limit them to 10,000 square foot. You know, obviously there's a, there's a loophole there. But the, I think the take home here with, the, with Seattle, which is, you know, the birthplace of indoor really, is that they've got to correct this problem. You know, we're an eco-conscious culture that is particularly there in Seattle, and we've got to live up to it. And so I think we've got, it's just an education. We've got to educate the consumer. You know, the consumer never had the opportunity to ask their drug dealer if their pot was sustainably farmed. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and now as a consumer, you have that responsibility, just as you do with all your other choices uh, that you make. And so if you're driving a, a Prius and, you know, eating sustainably or buying fair trade and locally sourced, then you've got to ask that same question about your marijuana. And I think that's beginning to happen. How do you see this playing out? Because, you know, obviously there's a lot of people that are cringing and, and raising red flags and maybe even hating you a little bit, listening to what you're saying because they're married to their indoor grows because that's how they've always done it. And, you know, for the most part, that's how we've done it for the last several decades. Do you see, you know, do you envision a world where indoor is is a very little or, or totally phased out? Or do you think that there's there's room for both in the market? <laughs> um, well, I've always said that in five days or five years, sorry, we'll remember a time when we pot indoors. And I truly believe that that is the case. How long that takes and how painful is that for the industry uh, <laughs> has yet to be seen. You know, the Liquor Control Board and the government could have really done this. You know, I, I have a feeling if we were in uh, the Netherlands that they would have said, no, we're not going to use this power to, to do this. We have a viable alternative and we, we protect our resources. That's the job of government. They failed here on this. They could have done this through rule. You know, they could have said, we're not going to support indoor growing. It's too much of an of a energy toll. It's too much uh, carbon produced. So that's unfortunate that the government hasn't taken a leading role on this issue, particularly our governor, who, who claims to be a uh, carbon, you know, the Al Gore or the, the next Al Gore. And he wrote a book about carbon production. He's constantly harping about it. But then when, when this issue is in front of him, he does nothing, you know, and I actually got him on KOMW about a year and a half ago and raised the issue, and he was totally 
uh, caught off guard. And I made attempts since then to try for him to adopt it. And I think for politicians, like for Obama on the national level, it would be an amazing approach for him to just be like, okay, you know, I, I don't want, I don't have that much of an opinion about it, but if we're going to do this, we have to protect the environment and we have to protect our kids from global warming. And, you know, the western side of the state or the western side of the country that is uh, pioneering legalization also has some of the more cleaner power you know as legalization rolls east there's going to be more and more incentive and uh, reason for people to try to limit this to indoors and that's going to be a national catastrophe right on well with that that sounds like where we've got to stop for the day so jeremy thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure to have you on this show thank you shango you can find out more about Jeremy Moberg and Canisol on their website, Canisol, that's C-A-N-N-A-S-O-L dot net. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur podcast in the podcast section at Gontrepreneur.com. You can also find us on the Cannabis Radio Network website and in the Apple iTunes store. On Gontrepreneur.com, you will find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. We are also thrilled to announce that you can now find the show on the iHeartRadio Network app, bringing Gontrepreneur to 60 million mobile devices. Do you have a company that wants to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email grow at gontrepreneur.com to find out how. Thanks to Brasco for producing our show as always. I am your host, Shango Los. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.